0: Hey folks, Ned here. Over the past 25 years, I've talked with thousands of parents of high school students, parents who care deeply about their kids' education and how they deal with stress and the pressure to succeed. But these parents need to work with a team they trust won't just pile on more pressure to achieve better grades and scores. This is why I started Prep Matters in 1997 to create a different kind of experience for test preparation, tutoring, and college admissions planning. This podcast and my books reflect our company's philosophy and approach to helping students. If you have a high school student and would like to talk about putting in place a plan, please get in touch with us. Visit our website at prepmatters.com or call 301-951-0350. That's 301-951-0350. Thanks. And now back to our show.
1: I wanted to address this question of what do young people need to thrive? What are these practices? But I also wanted to give grounding to anybody who has kids in their life of like, what actually do you need to know about child and youth development, about how these humans form, about lifespan development, about how they learn what the importance of purpose is, how they explore their interests, those pieces that again, don't just keep kids alive, but allow them to enjoy their lives.
0: Welcome to the Self-Driven Child Podcast. I'm your host, Ned Johnson, and co-author with Dr. William Stickstrude of the books The Self-Driven Child, The Science and Sense of Giving Your Kids More Control Over Their Lives. And What Do You Say? How to Talk With Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. As parents, we often find ourselves caught between thinking about the future, especially for our kids, often with some fear and uncertainty, while also trying to enjoy our kids just in the moment. Too often, we're simultaneously lamenting, where's the time gone? While also trying to speed up our development to help the kids get ahead or at least not fall behind. So what's a parent to do? Happily, perhaps paradoxically, turns out we may not have to choose. Today, we'll discuss the how of that and more. I'm Ned Johnson, and this is the Self-Driven Child Podcast. My guest today is Stephanie Malia Kraus. She's a wise educator, parent, and one of the nicest folks on Twitter, which I know there aren't very many of them. And she's the author of Whole Child, Whole Life, 10 Ways to Help Kids Live, Learn, and Thrive, and Making It, What Today's Kids Need for Tomorrow's World. Stephanie, I'd love for you to talk a little bit, in the, in the introduction to your book, you talk about how so much of your work was about preparing kids for the future and what do they need to thrive to really, to be great. And you make the point that you sort of pivot a little bit to thinking maybe a little bit less about the future and a little bit more about the now. Do I have that about right? And you can kind of walk us through how you shifted your thinking a bit?
1: You do. So I want to take you back to the moment when my first book, Making It, came out. I had left the education front lines about 10 years prior and had done it in a really dramatic way. So I guess I'm taking you 10 years before
0: Mm -hmm. the book
1: came out. Dramatic
0: Uh, in a good way or bad way? This sounds exciting.
1: Dramatic in a highly political public way. So we had been running a high school on a college campus and it was for youth who had not succeeded in a traditional environment. So they were Mm. way too old with too few credits to graduate on time. It was an impossible mathematical equation. And so we were able to get some of our students to meet the basic requirements. I knew I was going to close that high school during our first graduation, high school graduation, because Mm. I was watching these kids who had defied all of these odds, who thought that their high school diploma was a measure of being prepared and ready for what was going to come next. It was like a Willy Wonka golden ticket. Wow. Watch a ethical dilemma for me because I knew that actually what they had done was just figure out the most creative way and quickest way to meet the bare minimum graduation requirements for a high school diploma, which was not the same thing as really being ready for college. Mm -hmm.
0: Check the boxes.
1: Exactly. It took me on this 10 year journey working nationally where I was really asking this question of what actually does readiness require? for life after high school, for college, for work, for adult life. And so when I wrote Making It, I used to call it my love letter back to the front lines because so much of what I had been asking myself as a school leader and an educator about, well, are these graduation requirements really what matters the most? And what actually are they going to need? Is this diploma going to be enough? I was able to resolve, but only after leaving the front lines and being with researchers and policymakers and funders and other folks who were having conversations that teachers and tutors and counselors weren't a part of. So I write this book. I'm so excited. It's all of the research and work that I've learned about what our kids need to be ready for this rapidly changing world, workforce, changing college landscape. And then it comes out in May of 2021, the height (laughs) of pandemic. And so I'm left with my basement mic in my house to do this pandemic book tour. And I go virtually all across the country talking to teachers and counselors and caregivers. And they were always appreciative, Ned, of my talking about what kids would need to be ready for the future and really thankful to kind of update their picture of college and career readiness in particular. And my big focus with that book was how do we expand this idea of trying to get our kids ready for college and careers to trying to get them ready for a long and livable life. Mm, I love that. And I would leave those conversations and I would say, like, yeah, but as a mom, I want my kid to have a long life. I want them to have a livable life. I also want them to have a life that they love. And I felt that in the questions I would get while I was talking, where people would find out I was a social worker by training, they would find out I was a mom, and they would say something like, hey, I'm kind of afraid my kid's going to burn out or give up before they get to tomorrow's world. What do they need for today's? And that became the heart of this next book, which was I needed to know as a parent, was it possible to thrive in turbulent times? What kind of timely and timeless practices could we focus on that would help kids not only make it flourish as times were difficult and hard. It was something that I really felt in my bones. And so whole child, whole life, where making it was kind of this love letter back to the front lines, whole child, whole life was writing as fast as I could from the trenches of Hmm. parents right alongside everybody, trying to take care of these kids who were really going through something and asking not only what do they need to be ready, but what do they need to be well And could it be possible that in the same way that we talk about lifelong learning, that we could actually talk about lifelong thriving? Were there ways, in the same ways we try to have our kids be learners and that will last them a lifetime, are there ways that we can teach them to support and nurture their own wellness and well-being and that that also can last them a lifetime? And and that's where the book was born.
0: I love it. There's a quip that Bill Stokes, my co author, and I make when we talk about the self driven child that's very adjacent to what what you've just shared. And I say this as a test prep geek, you know, guy who hopes kids get into, you know, fancy colleges, as it were, that the most important outcome of high school and adolescence cannot be where you go to college, but rather the brain that you develop and you carry into college. If you go to college or work or whatever, because you've sort of got prenatal through age two, and we can talk about A scores. But then again, this chance to rewire, sculpt the adult the brain as an adolescent is so into adulthood. I love that because if if I think about your previous work of, well, we got a high school degree, but at what cost? Right? You know, how do kids come out of that feeling about themselves? And then what's the brain state, particularly when uh, I, <laughs> I think about so many how we use adolescent time and energy, and frankly, the energy of so many parents and educators oftentimes trying to convince kids that the things that they're doing are important and significant when nobody believes that at all.
1: Yeah, I agree. And also one of the things that I realized was I've been deeply entrenched in national efforts around the science of learning and development and adolescence and Mm -hmm. whether that's engaging with funders or scholars. And there was so much in what you just said. And what we've been tracking that we've learned that we never knew before about how paramount the school-aged years are and how important that 11 to 25 is. And so another sort of layer here was I wanted to address this question of what do young people need to thrive? What are these practices? But I also wanted to give grounding to anybody who has kids in their life of like, what actually do you need to know about Child and youth development about mm. how these humans form, about lifespan development, about how they learn what the importance of purpose is, how they explore their interests. Those pieces that again don't just keep kids alive, but allow them to enjoy their lives.
0: I'd love to jump in there you, in the in our the second book that Bill and I wrote called What Do You Say? The last chapter in it, talking with kids about the pursuit of happiness. And we do a deep dive on on Martin Seligman's perma of, of happiness, of positive emotions, engagement, relationships, so on and so forth. But you have a very similar list and frankly a more expansive one in talking about what matters of connection and identity and culture. And do, do you want to talk a little bit about those things? Because it feels to me like so often in school, you know, we talk about personal interests and we talk about mental health and we talk about community and and all these sorts of things but it often feels like those are in my view at the periphery of sort of things we'll we'll, we'll, ha- we'll have an assembly about you know this or that or we'll have such and such week but those things too often in, in my view i mean you can please correct me often don't feel like they're at the core of the work that children are doing or the priorities of of the, the families are are led to believe are important or that educators are, are told they need to prioritize
1: the first thing I'll say is I, I'm i such a fan of Marty Seligman's work and all of the kind of researchers who've come up with him in Pennsylvania, whether at UPenn or over across the state in Pittsburgh. And a lot of his foundational work on character is in the book, in Whole Child, Whole Life. And certainly he is a leading pioneering voice on this idea of flourishing. But I want to sort of deep in there. So Mm -hmm. as somebody raising kids right now in this moment, a lot of the literature on flourishing and thriving starts with the idea that things are okay. And how do we make them better and greater? And how long can it last? And I really wanted to grapple with the ugly parts of life and Mm. recognizing and naming that I used to think when I started writing Whole Child, Whole Life You start at surviving, and then you sort of push almost like red, yellow, green over to thriving. And what I recognized, and I'm sure from your work experience and your personal parenting journey, you'll get this right away, is that kids' ability to thrive in life and learning looks more like an EKG in a given day. It goes up and down depending on the moment, depending on the context, depending on who they're with and what's happening. And that our job, instead of creating a season where they're going to thrive all the time, is actually just to set the conditions where thriving is most possible. And then mm. the other adults in the kid's life, whether it's their medical team, their school team, whoever else, to kind of expand and extend how often they can go into spaces where thriving is possible. So to, to contextualize this further, what I was in search of were the practices that across time and context have always supported the healthy learning and development of kids Mm -hmm. and have also made it possible for young people to sort of shift into a space where thriving can occur. And for me, when I think about thriving, I think about a couple of different conditions where kids are, where they're safe and supported, where they feel really rooted and connected to where they are, but also where like, the spark and the lights are on. So they're living with joy. There's joy, there's purpose, there's growth, there's novelty, right? The, the synapses are firing. And so I looked across every discipline that I was connected with, which I think is probably one of the unique parts of this book, is that my background cuts across education and youth development, health, workforce development, and higher education, And so I was looking in all of the different spaces where pieces of the answer live. So social workers and mental health professionals can really speak into what do young people need to support cognitive fitness, to support Mm -hmm. mental health, to support resiliency, right? In times of struggle, then you have pediatricians and medical folks who can talk about the impact of the body on the brain and development and learning and how intersectional and connected everything really is and of course the folks in the learning space and human development space talking about the role of identity or relationships or whatever else and so basically what I did Ned was I I tried to not be prescriptive but be principled and Mm. look at what are the principles and practice that cut across time that cut across discipline and that really center around the life and learning of a young person that always, no matter what, enable good things to happen or set up the conditions where good things can happen. And so some of these practices started to emerge like nurturing healthy relationships, building community and belonging, investing in personal interests, meeting basic needs, which included rest and movement, downtime, purpose, being a force for good, giving back contribution. Seeking on Wonder, which is like seeing the world as something beautiful and that you're part of something bigger. There's a bigger story here. And then what I did, which is a huge privilege of my life, is that I got on the phone with some of the most brilliant legacy scholars, scientists, and thought leaders who think about kids and education and development. And we just, on the Zoom screen, looked at the list and I said, is this right? Is it in the right order? Like, How should we talk about it? And so what listeners will be able to find, which you saw in the book, is actually this really solid set of 10 practices that I call whole life practices because they matter across the wide of kids' life, any space where they spend time and the long of their life from childhood all the way into old age, that really support livability and lovability and learning all together.
0: I love that livability and lovability, you know, and those 10 principles was so fun for me. I'm not sure what chapter of the book, you make the point that effectively anything that is good for our children also tends to be good for us.
1: Yeah, that has been like totally transformational for me. So I'll tell you, I have my very best girlfriend is a neighbor who lives across the woods from me, and she is a hospice chaplain. She has one of the hardest jobs. She's a chaplain for patients who are dying in the city Mm -hmm. hospital, and we're raising our kids together. And she said, why don't we take these 10 practices? It was, again, the middle of the pandemic, and I just told you the job she had. And she said, let's turn it into a Lent practice. And so we're a little nerdy ourselves. So we created this like very complicated Google spreadsheet, and we put all 10 practices. So from meeting basic needs and prioritizing mental health, all the way to relationships and community and belonging to forces for good. And then we came up with what we could do to actually support our own wellness and wholeness and well being to see if it worked. And it did. And we created these experiences. And it's, <laughs> That included us and our kids, and it was so life-giving. So one example was I took my kids on a very short trip, and in the book, when I talk about seeking awe and wonder, it's the last practice I talk about, and it's really about spiritual development of young people, which outside of a religious context is actually a really important thing to address. The research says that kids have kind of this inborn spirituality that if we just nurture and keep alive is actually very protective. It doesn't have to be that they connect with a God that they call God, but it could be, but it is this idea of I'm a part of something bigger. And a big part of that is creating these moments that kind of expand what they believe is possible. And so I realized that I drive past every scenic overlook ever, because I'm always on my way to something.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: And so one particular way that I put these principles into practice in my own life was just stopping on the side of the road and experiencing with my kids these scenic views and watching the view and them equally. And it was so deeply satisfying.
0: I'm trying to remember what philosopher it was who made the point that journeys of discovery are, are not traveling to new places, but seen with new eyes. You think about that with children. My wife and I like to hike. We have a cabin up in the Adirondacks and, and do all this hiking. I can still remember hiking or trying to hike with my four-year-old and six-year-old. My daughter was four years old. And I had this idea, we we're going to get to the top of this mountain and see this view. And we've gone, I don't know, it feels like six feet up the path. I'm sure it was more than that. And it was in the fall. And my daughter goes, oh, <gasps> And she sits down and she picks up this beautiful red maple leaf and she's just transfixed by it. And she, oh, and she walks like a few more, like, oh, another one. <laughs> you can imagine how this goes. And next thing you know, I have pockets full of red maple leaves. And again, this idea of, as I said before, you know, to the future and the present, right? And my head was, let's get to the top of this mountain and taking this wonderful view. And she's, she's taken six steps from, from our car and she's already found something that is absolutely, you know, captivating to her. It's like, it was humbling. It was humbling.
1: You know, and I want to like dig in there a little bit. First off, I love that story. And I love that you remember that, right? Like you can remember the like pockets full of red leaves. I think obviously this is going to become a theme of the episode, but like life is really hard for kids now and growing up in this time is really hard. I've been really struck this week. My younger son is in fourth grade and he had his first field day and field trip of his life. Oh my. Last week, you know, annual traditions typically because the pandemic shut down the world in first grade for him. And so here, right, like he has gone through all of this time and And now he's nearly done with elementary school. But we also know that so many kids individually experienced incredible grief and trauma and loss and hardship. And then all the regular, horrible, hard things that happen, pandemic aside, still happened or happened worse. And so one of the parts of this work was to recognize that, like, I want kids and young people through their tween and teen years into young adulthood to recognize that life is not only worth living, but loving this theme, right? It was largely written, the book, in response to the request of all these people taking care of kids, but also in response to this extremely alarming, growing for years, but now spiking youth mental health crisis. And so you can get your work and thinking about getting kids into college And for me, a part of the whole life practices, particularly as I think about my own children, is knowing, do they have what they need right now? And do they have what they need for what's next? And do they have that both internally and externally? Do they have the skills that they need internally and the strength they need internally? But do they also know what services and supports they might need on the outside and where to go for that? And I think that's a level of cross-training that so many of us just don't get or don't think to consider. You know, we don't think to consider what would our kids need in a health crisis, in a mental health crisis, what would they need in particular contexts. And we may not be able to figure that out, but there is a certain level of forecasting and educating ourselves on the new context. So back to the maple leaves one of the things we can forecast is that the environment and climate is changing and that that is going to carry with them across their long lives. Well, they need to see that the world is beautiful and have some sense of responsibility and care and connection to it. They've got to enjoy it as much as they need to be in a position likely where they'll have to protect it and live in the precarity of it.
0: Mm. And I also love that the it strikes me that that list of, of really valuable things when, you, when we think about these are the things that make life worth living. That's right. And these are things that, that humans naturally crave at any possible age. And for all of us as parents, as educators, as clinicians, to be reminded of how important these things are for mental health, for physical health, for longevity, for just enjoying life, because it's so easy to think that these are things we enjoy when we find time, as opposed to making this part of our daily lives. I was just talking this morning with my co-author and and, and (laughs) was reminded of a client I have. I'll try not to give any identifying information of extraordinarily wealth. The parents sent me down at the start of this child's, I want to give the gender, sophomore year, end of sophomore year, and talking about Test preparation—that's the work that I do so often. Before we get to that, let me just lay out the, the plan here. And at a, a seven-figure contribution to been made to some Ivy League school, and so as long as the scores are there, you know, we've, we've basically we've got a glide path to the school. I'm like, well, oh, I'm oh, um, okay. And then the, one of the parents goes off on this riff, like, but all that they want to do is hang out with their friends and play soccer. I mean, like, what's the point of that? I mean, it's not—it's not like they're going to be recruited for for sports. And I, and I thought. Because it's fun, because they these may be the only healthy outlets for stress relief from this ridiculous world in school that they attend. And I'm smiling because I, I biked over here to my office, and at the end of my driveway, right by this house, and my my neighbor is the school nurse, a lovely local school, and she's getting into her car, and she has a helmet, and I'm like, "What are you off to?" And I I couldn't I didn't know what kind of helmet. She's like, "I'm going to play baseball," and I'm like, "Really?" And she said, Yeah, I'm in this Women's League of Baseball, blah, blah, blah. And I said, Did you play baseball or softball in high school? Well, in middle school, but it seems like this is a fun thing to do. And and, and she's my age, I'm in her early 50s. And she said, There, there are women there who are 18. It's this total fantastic cross generational experience. And I thought, Oh my goodness. I mean, one, how just fantastic. And it's, a, I mean, do you see, it's about a beautiful day as you get here for this. But also, when we think about, for a sense of joy and also a protective factor, right? I mean, you know, the Surgeon General just came out about how loneliness is as big a threat to people's health as if they smoked 15 cigarettes a day, right? And so this this wackadoodle parent who says, we must drive them to get better test scores, right? And heaven knows we got to make sure we take away time with friends is, oh, it's mm-hmm. to remind ourselves in that wonderful list uh, and, and really the how-to that you walk us through that these are things that are, protective factors, and one of the sources of what makes life worth living, right?
1: So, yeah. So let me tell you about this interesting experience I had. So I'm sure many of your listeners are really concerned about college preparedness and career. And so one of the big things to, I think, hear from me is I spent an incredible, inordinate amount of time on not only college access and readiness issues, but actually working with colleges and universities and college and university associations and membership organizations and lots of people thinking about the future of work. And one of the disciplines that that I spent the most time in was longevity science and lifespan science. And it was really striking as people are living longer, you're seeing more books come out on successful aging you know, how to live longer and better, how to age well. But what I knew as somebody who studied child well-being and development for my whole career was that so much of what happens, what they're naming as crucial or what they're now saying is not only adulthood, but elderhood, Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. it's
1: foundationally set in the first 25 years of life, what I call the first quarter. And so the thing that I think has transformed me the most when I think about your story of that client, what scientists are now saying is that with the right resources and opportunities, so for example, your client has wealth, has a lot of advantage, probably connections to all of the services or care that he or she might need. Science has made it possible. Society has made it possible for kids, our kids, as an expectation, not an exception to live a 100 year life or potentially even longer. So, if we think about that, I just had an essay come out last week called The 60 Year Career. Hmm. I have to now imagine that our kids prospectively could have a lifetime of work, a lifetime of having to go back to school, change jobs, change careers. And so if we take this longer view of what does my child need, not for the first degree or the first college experience or the immediate transition, but instead, what are the assets and strengths that they need that they can get while they're in elementary and middle high school that will serve them prospectively across 8, 9, 10, 11, even 12 decades. It's a really... Overwhelming thing, but wow. it is a complete reorientation. So, in my own life, when I had a child who struggled with a uh, long term health and mental health condition, that became the priority because I knew above performance or meeting certain criteria of a week or a month's worth of work that this was going to be something he was going to have to take on for the rest of his life and getting it right was the priority. Similarly, the chapter I wrote on nurturing healthy relationships, I have a box about loneliness and those health risks that you mentioned. There's nothing nothing more important in the literature, no matter where you look, no matter what study you pull up, than the life-giving qualities of healthy relationships, not only on people's ability to enjoy their life, but also on performance, like doing well at work, doing well in school, doing well in sports or whatever else. Um, And so the other part of the whole life practices were about actually that blend of readiness and wellness together, that there are conditions like healthy relationships or mental health that not only are good for kids, but also optimize their opportunities
0: yeah, that's a point that we've been talking about a lot, and as you know, and the Surgeon General and kind of everyone all over the place, and and for parents to know that if there's a silver bullet against the effects of stress on developing brains, it's a close connection with with parent or another caregiver. I mean, full stop, full stop. And also, when you look at self determination theory, this model of intrinsic motivation, which we're such big fans of you know, competency, autonomy, and relatedness. And the piece that the parents can really lean into most is their connection. And if they do it in a way that supports kids' autonomy, then they're really off to the races. I had a client who came in a couple of weeks ago and was reading the, the neuropsychological evaluation. And this was a child who in kindergarten and first grade was hiding in the bathroom during math class, so stressed. And this parent was spending five hours every Sunday trying to get their kid to learn this math better. And I just said, you have to stop unintentionally. You're trying to help him develop his competency. I, under- I understand that. But what you're also telling him is that this is the most important thing in the world. It must be an effing calamity, the end of the world, if you somehow don't turn this around because you're doing Kumon, you're doing Mathnasium, and you're seeing the tutor, the teacher three times a week, and you're spending basically all of his waking hours on Sunday on this thing that, that he finds hardest in the world. I mean, talk about creating fear. And so I just made a few small suggestions, including, it's very ADHD. I said, don't come home and make him go right into math. I said, go for a walk for half an hour and then let him clear his brain. And, and she said, it worked beautifully. And the other thing that reminded her, I'll say this for all parents, <laughs> whether you've got a kid who's struggling or not, for kids for whom school is hard or for whom life is hard, they need more support. They need more support. But how we do it is so pivotal because if we push and we push, kids start to resist. As parents, we have to protest with our children in ways that can't be about this test or this week or next month, but that we're going to work well with them, arguably for years. And how we go about it is so is so valuable. And especially, <laughs> I think, when people leave the, the household, when you, you can't chase your kid when they're off at college, right? I have a friend who wrote a book about decisions and, and in that she pointed out that by the time children leave the household after high school, they will have spent with us 90% of all the time they overspend with us. So how we spend our time now has a lot to say. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day, everybody, has a lot to say about how much time we get to spend with them in the future, right? And and really the nature of it. And it's it's just it's so hard not to get spun up, but to think about as you said. The most important thing is the quality of that relationship with they have our kid.
1: Yeah, that's right. You know, earlier in the conversation, we were talking about what are the sort of principles we can put into play for how kids can live and love their life. I think the other part of these practices, and I was a fifth grade teacher, so I alliterate and it's a problem. The other thing that I think about is like, what are the skills and supports that they need to endure and enjoy the environment? Yeah. They're in the experiences that they're in because it calls for both. And if we're thinking about the prospect of a 100 year life, mm. there's a lot of enduring. There are seasons and situations that they are going to simply need to get through. We can still create moments, even inside of that, where there's joy and purpose and belief in something bigger and better that can fuel them. And so I keep thinking about your clients. I have an interesting experience. I got sober when I was 15 and I ended up in college at 16 with a GED, very different road than Mm -hmm. a lot of your clients. And I was in recovery as this 16 year old kid. So I had no license. I was in AA meetings at the time and I had to walk. So the only place I could walk to was Palm Beach, the wealthiest community in the United States. And so that was where here I was, this GED recipient from New Jersey, who was going to college, this little baby college on the other side of the intracoastal. And every day I would walk across to the wealthiest community in the U.S., And I would be in these rooms of recovery with people who were among the wealthiest in the world. And so I got real-time instruction on just how same we are. And how human we all are, right? As my dad would say, we all put on our pants the same way. It just strikes me that there are true intense equity and disparity issues that have to be addressed. But as parents who care for and love our kids, it doesn't matter what kind of station or situation of life you're in. It's about do they have the foundational things internally and externally That no matter what happens, we have some level of confidence, some measure of, dare I say, control of like, okay, I think they're going to be okay. I don't know what's going to happen next, but I think that in this moment, they're going to be okay. And ultimately, I want to make sure that across the ecosystem of places that I recognize, honestly, not every place and not every person is going to have the best interests of my kid in mind all the time. But across all of these spaces and places and people, can we create a map where the lights are on and that in a day or in a week, those practices are alive and in play for them?
0: I love that. I mean, I r- recall giving a lecture years ago about kids and motivation and saying that, Every kid needs to have something that he or she looks forward to in the school day that I can suffer through social studies. I'm not meaning to pick on social studies teachers or gym, whatever, right? Because you get to go to chorus or lunch is fun because you get to hang out with your friends or you've got soccer after school or whatever, right? And I think that same thing applies in what you've just shared here is that there are parts of life that are kind of stinky, right? And this is going to be really hard and, and that teacher doesn't like me and that whatever, but if you know that these islands that you can land on where it's going to be fun or it's going to be joyful, or there are people who are happy to see you, or you can endure school and school really sucks for you right now, but you get to come home and your mom or dad just wraps her arms, just I'm so happy to see you. Right. And that's it. What you know, we talk about in the self-driven child about having home be a safe base. And in a perfect world, all of us, all of our children have multiple places where it's a safe base where they can let their guard down a little bit, where they can catch the breath and they they don't have to be on guard all the time. And with the practices that you describe, that can be things that are physical, right? But they can even be internal spaces that they can can hold onto. I mean, from my perspective, if, if we could sit here and end this conversation and tell everyone who's listening that nothing truly profoundly challenging, whatever happened to your children, That'd be the most amazing thing in the world. But of course, we can't say that because we know it's not true.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think there's a part of this that has been grief and acceptance for me Mm. that I can't protect my kids from all of the ugly of the world. And there have been some pretty awful and traumatic events, even in the context of a loving, caring family that have happened to us, to our family, to people that we love, but I can create that home base and I can know what matters most so that I understand if I'm going to advocate for them, if I'm going to make a change, if I'm going to lay into my social capital and ask for a shift in a, you know, I I want them to be in a different Y program with a different counselor or Oh, I'm going to, you know, we're going to change sports or whatever else that there's a, there's a grounding myself in what matters. And then I kind of brace myself. We look back to nine we've got more than 20 years, an entire generation of kids who have only grown up with volatility and uncertainty as these sort of stamps and through lines in their lives. And then when we look out to the future, the future of work, the future of learning, the economy, the environment, all of these pieces, it's likely that that will continue. And so giving them the steady and the stable, understanding that those will be hallmarks of not only their childhoods, but likely the rest of their lives will be key. A last thing I'll say here that I think is so important is that you may have noticed I started the book with the voice of my own child. But I think listening to our kids because their lived experience is fundamentally different from our own about what matters most to them and the kind of life that they want and honoring and recognizing that is another part of this puzzle.
0: Oh, I love that. And I, if, if I may, I was so taken by Justin, Reyes. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna share this with people just to get a taste of, of where this book is. So in part he says, I've also known this world my entire life. I was born into it. This world is different from the one most adults grew up in. We need people who understand that. We need people who respect what we're going through, people who listen to kids and take us seriously. We have ideas and dreams, and we deserve to be heard and respected as much as adults. The people in my life who have understood this are most caring, want to know what I have to say, and they share my belief that things are hard and that we can make them better my mom thought a book about kids and what they need should start with the perspective of a child. So you got me enjoy the book and please do what my mom suggests.
1: (laughs) Isn't that the greatest? And I listen, friends who are listening. I did not like, those are truly his words. I didn't touch it.
0: (laughs) The cynic in me pictures was like, here's 20 bucks, buddy. But no, it's beautifully said. I was, I forget where I was lecturing the other week. And just reminding folks, I mean, you know, I mean, I've, <laughs> it's so easy for any of us certain days, ah, oh, kids today, you know, get off my lawn, kind of thinking. And if we remind ourselves that our children didn't raise themselves and they did not build the world that they're growing up in. And so we as adults should take that seriously and not to beat ourselves up too much, but simply to acknowledge that, as Justin said so well, the world that he's growing up in, that all of our kids are growing up in is harder than the one that we grew up in. And so we should take that seriously. And our kids are going to need help, but we can do it in ways that are respectful and take seriously that they too have big dreams and big ideas. And we should honor that and respect it, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. And that they deserve both a roadmap of what they need to be ready and and the pack with all the tools and things that they'll need for that journey.
0: That is really well said. Well, Stephanie, I have so enjoyed this conversation. If people want to find you, where should they uh, where should they track you down?
1: Thanks, Ned. Yeah, so if you want to connect with me directly, you can go to Stephanie Malia Krause with two S's, no E, dot com. And to learn more about the book, folks can go to wholechildwholelife.com. Please pick up a copy wherever you buy your books that wholechildwholelife.com can give you all of the information you need and you can also get in contact with me that way
0: I love it thank you for sharing your time with me thank you for writing this book it's terrific and, and <laughs> it's never been easy to be a parent it's never been easy to be a kid and certainly the last few years have really upended things in ways that, that no one would have predicted. It's a wonderful book and it's so humane. I hope that people do pick it up because who as a parent can't benefit from a, a few more tools and a deeper understanding about what our kids need to live and learn and love life and, and not just endure, but thrive. So thank you.
1: Thanks so much, Ned.
0: Hey folks, Ned here. Over the past 25 years, I've talked with thousands of parents of high school students parents who care deeply about their kids' education and how they deal with stress and the pressure to succeed. But these parents need to work with a team they trust won't just pile on more pressure to achieve better grades and scores. This is why I started Prep Matters in 1997, to create a different kind of experience for test preparation, tutoring, and college admissions planning. This podcast and my books reflect our company's philosophy and approach to helping students. If you have a high school student and would like to talk about putting in place a plan, please get in touch with us. Visit our website at PrepMatters.com or call 301-951-0350. That's 301-951-0350. Thanks!